Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, where we are making old-school young again. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and guys, I am so unbelievably excited about this show tonight. Um, We have one of my favorite people on. No offense to everyone else who's a regular on Rolling Bones. You guys know that I love you, Uh, but every time I get to talk to Alexander McCreese, it is a treat. It's always a fun conversation, and tonight we're talking about the long-awaited launch for the Kickstarter campaign for Adventurer Conqueror King System Imperial Imprint, aka Axe 2. I am I'm just over the moon excited about this one. So uh let me get my nonsense out of the way here. Remember to like, share, and subscribe if you enjoy my nonsense and want to see additional nonsense. And uh tell your nonsense enjoying friends about my nonsense. That's the best way to do it. And you can also follow my other nonsense over on X and Instagram at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. Uh, the main hub of nonsense is here at YouTube, Rolling Bones, twitch.tv slash Rolling Bones Ryan, if you prefer your nonsense served up by Amazon servers. And you can find nonsense articles that I write about role-playing games over on my substack, which is rollingbones.substack.com. You can find the link to that here in the chat, or you can find it pinned in the pinned comment if you are watching this after the fact. And also, if you love t-shirts that show how much of a fan of nonsense you are, you can find those over on TeePublic. I've got multiple designs up. Uh, That is uh, all of my stuff. Once again, I want to remind everyone, the Kickstarter campaign for Adventurer Conqueror King System Imperial Imprint is launching on October the 24th. You can find it right now. On Kickstarter, I will once again drop the link here in chat for all of you. Uh, So without further ado, let's bring on the guy you are all here to see. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, he is the founder of The Escapist, the creator of Axe and Ascendant. One of my favorite people in the whole wide world, Alexander McCreese. Thanks for having me. I wore my my Escapist hoodie. Nice. Yeah, legacy hoodie from 15 years ago. Absolutely. From the last time the site was watchable. Oh, burn. <laughs> burn, burn, burn. Uh, well, thanks for having me on the show, man. And thanks for the kind words. It's, uh, you, you've kind of talked me up now, and I'm stressed that I won't be able to deliver. You know? Oh, dude, every time you come on here, you deliver. I, I thoroughly enjoy our conversations, both beforehand and after the show. And during the, during the show, I need to chill. I need to calm down. Yeah, it's probably it's probably for the best that people don't hear the after the show conversations. It's true. It's true. But no, I 
I always thoroughly enjoy talking to you. I'm going to throw kind of a curveball at you because I haven't heard you talk about this on any show. I just want to bring up the image here from Kickstarter again. Okay. I know you did a tweet about this a while ago, but I just want to confirm one more time for everyone out there. The Blade Dancer is kind of a uh, like avatar of Axe, also mm-hmm. on the cover for the first edition. That's modeled after your wife, correct? Yeah, that's modeled after my wife, Amy. She was the first Blade Dancer, and she was a uh, you know um, she was a model in Los Angeles and dancer with you know dark hair, and so that, that's her. Sweet. Yep. Yep. So you don't say I didn't do anything for you. You're on the cover of my game. Yeah, I dedicated the first edition of Axe to her. Actually, there's a, so there's a little dedication in there for her. And um, you know, the whole reason I started doing RPGs was because um, you know she she kind of got ill with this chronic illness, and I needed to find something to do with my time. And she was like, "Honey, you're so talented at this, you know, D and D stuff. You should do something." So that's how it started. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, and so we did. We, I, I wanted to do an homage on the second cover um, uh, to the first cover, right? So it's the moment mm-hmm. after the first cover. If you if you pull them side by side, nice. And uh, from chat, Brian James, Britney Spears was the second blade dancer. Britney nice. Spears is absolutely a blade dancer. I thought she was barred, but I've seen her latest video, Blade Dancer. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, R Dubs wants to know if this is similar to the new My Little Pony RPG. Um, you know, it's really close. I think I think there's gonna be a lot of fan overlap between like the My Little Pony Bros and the Axe players for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say, friendship is only magic if you have the spell slots for it. Ah. <laughs> now the the topic that I wanted to kind of kick off the show with uh, this is something that occurred to me very shortly before we went on the air. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how RPGs were written. I'm thinking specifically of what people call high Gygaxian. And I'm thinking of how they're written now and then how you approach kind of writing for RPGs. And there's a sense of intellectual rigor to your writing. And I'm not just blowing smoke. From the way you speak, the way that your videos are constructed on your YouTube channel, I know that you have done a lot of deep thinking about these topics, more so than a lot of other designers. And so I just want to ask, what are your thoughts on kind of bringing intellectualism back into the the world of role playing? Well, I'm I'm certainly doing my part. Um, Yeah, I I noticed this a lot when I compare the games that were written in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, um, both the RPGs and the war games to the games that are written today. Um, the, uh, presumed level of intelligence was much higher. The presumed level of education was much higher. And the, as a result, because they assumed that you were really smart and knew what you were talking about, they made the sure that their game was really smart and knew what it was talking about. And, you know, there is certainly a, a level of elitism there, which can hamper the growth of a hobby. Um, if it's entirely restricted to only sort of a, like a, a cognitive upper class. And so, you know, we, 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 we've seen over time, war games become simpler, RPGs become simpler. Hmm. Um, and I think we've also seen possibly, you know, just improvements in how we present things that make them simpler without costing anything on the back end. But I think there's also been a retreat from intellectual rigor and a retreat from, you know, doing the research, doing the math. Absolutely. And 
one of the one of the things that always kind of trips me up about when you when you bring up this topic to people and they're like well you know we we don't want people to think that we're autistic which you know we're gamers they think that already mm -hmm. um but also there's this this idea that people think you're talking over them when you are putting intellectual rigor into a game and i i really feel like people need to understand that there's there's a beauty and a balance to making something that clearly was thought out, that's clearly intellectual, that doesn't talk down to people or that doesn't right. talk over their heads. It's it's this kind of beautiful art of taking something complex and making it simple that a lot of people don't put forth much effort into doing anymore. Right, right. You know, uh, what's what's interesting is that the um the level of intellectual rigor in other areas of pop culture has in some ways increased like for instance um you know star trek the original series you know if they encountered an alien race that was speaking something it was just gibberish right mm -hmm. um you know but nowadays it's it's standard for if you're doing a serious science fiction franchise you hire a linguist you create a con language a constructed language for your aliens to speak you know klingon or the creole in um uh, um, the expanse, um, you know, and, and that's kind of like the approach I take with acts, right? Mm. Like I, I want, I want there to be an enormous amount of depth beneath, beneath the water line of my game designs. And the player only ever really needs to interact with the, the, you know, the part of the ice cube that's sticking above the water. But I want that depth there for those who, who swim into the depths and, and they look for that. So, mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's again, it, it's something that was present very early on. It's gone away. And I think there's it, I know that you are doing it. I'm trying to do it in kind of my forays into writing role playing games. And I know there's a there's a rabid pack of uh, people out there online who want to see stuff like that brought back in. And so there there's definitely a hunger for it. And I, I feel like more game designers need to take that take that leap and actually provide that for the people who are looking for it. Right. Well, you know, for me, uh, I don't have to support a fortune 500 brand like Dungeons and Dragons, you know, it's just myself right. here at Autark. And so, you know, if I design a game that is outside of the direction that the mainstream is going, but it has, you know, for a certain segment of the gaming population, it's the best game ever made for them, then, you know, that's a success for me. Um, whereas, you know, oh, I made something that was just as accessible as fifth edition and, you know, fifth edition players will like it. Well, yeah, but they're just going to play fifth edition, right? Like I'm not, not going to move that needle. So, um, yeah, so I, I feel like whether or not you can even afford to be intellectually rigorous in your games probably depends on, you know, your, the business model you're pursuing, right? Like, are you, you know, if, if there's, if there's no payoff for doing that, I can totally understand why they wouldn't do that. Yeah. 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 And Ardubs in chat here uh, asked the question, do you really want to sit at a table with a cognitive lower class, though? And without... Um, that's, a, that's a very difficult question to ask there, Ardubs, because the, the answer is you, you don't really know what people are capable of grasping when you kind of you first sit down with them unless you really know them. And 
there's also this kind of sense of, do you actually want to play the game? Because you can go around, you know, trying to, to build your table full of, uh, you know, Oxford PhDs or whatever your, your category is, but that's going to take a lot longer than just bringing people who want to play and are eager to learn and eager to push themselves kind of beyond where they're mentally comfortable. That is something that I'd more value people who are looking to push themselves intellectually rather than people who are always, uh, you know, right there with you. And, and I think that's what we should be doing as game masters is kind of pulling people out of the cave as it were. That's right. Now. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say I'm blessed in this regard. So my home group, we have, um, you know, two, uh, two PhDs in computer science that work on AI. We have a former um, US military intelligence officer and we have uh, a retired Silicon Valley millionaire who got rich by 30. Like, you know, the, the IQ level is is very high in my game group. So, um, so I, I'm blessed in that regard. I mean, I'm also cursed in the sense that, man, you can't get away, can't get away with anything with those guys. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they keep me on my toes, so it works. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's another conversation that I wanted to have with you, and this is what I originally reached out to you about uh, before I knew that the the Axe 2 campaign was about to launch. Um, I've had a lot of conversations recently with people about domain play and higher levels of role playing. And the conclusion that I've come to is domain play is a necessary element and really the core element of the higher levels. And I've gotten a lot of pushback. In mm. fact, I've gotten a lot of pushback from uh, somewhat prestigious published designers mm. saying that. So I, I guess my question to you is, you know, I, I, I kind of know the answer here, but what are your thoughts on, on that, uh, that thesis that domain play is the central focus of the high levels? Well, okay, so A, it's a great question. And B, my answer is it depends on the game. I think for people that want to have the classic hero's journey and in a fantasy world, then yes, domain play is absolutely going to be central to the end game. You know, and we see this in all of the myth and fiction that we emulate. Theseus becomes a king. Um, Odysseus returns home and becomes a king. Conan becomes a king. Aragorn becomes a king. Um, uh, you know, um, even in more recent um, uh, Game of Thrones, right? Like at the end of the show, everybody's a king or a queen or whatever. Like, you know, everyone is ascended to power. Um, and I think that that has always been an intrinsic part of the, the um, you know, the imaginary journey that we want our heroes to go on. It's just that most people haven't figured out how to make it balanced, fun, and playable um, right. because it's a very difficult challenge. Now, in other genres, I can think, you know, well, maybe domain play isn't the end game, right? Like I could imagine, um, you know, if you're doing a... Um, uh, you know, like a superhero game, you know, it doesn't turn into domain play. It's just about becoming the world's most powerful superheroes. And you're just doing local threats then national threats then city threats then global, you know, global threats, et cetera. So it doesn't have to be, but I think for class and level D20 fantasy domains, domain play is the, is, is, and should be the end game. Hmm. 
Now, it's interesting you mentioned superheroes because that's something that I've been thinking about a lot is domain play in a superhero sense. And I, I honestly see it as kind of part and parcel of becoming a high-level superhero is as your reach expands, you know, as you go from, like you said, local threats to national threats to global threats and then intergalactic, if you're going to that scale, a lot of times what ends up happening in, in comic books is heroes band together. And so that's mm -hmm. how, uh, you know, Iron Man and uh, Thor and Captain America form the Avengers, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman form the Justice League. And so there's always this kind of grouping together and amassing a kind of social capital as superheroes and building a yeah. fortress to go along with it and a system to monitor the globe because you can't physically see everything at all times, even if you are uh, the fastest man alive, like the flash. So I, I even see domain play as being kind of necessary in the superhero realm as well. Well, it, okay. So at that point, I guess we have to, uh, we have to discuss the definition of domain play. Um, you know, sure. if you told me, if you told me your superhero game enables you to build fortresses and set up super teams, you know, Ascendant does that. I made sure that was there for the back end uh, of powerful superheroes. I agree that is a necessary element. On the other hand, if you said that in your superhero game, you end up taking over the government of the countries <laughs> and you then pit them against each other in World War III superheroic battles um, of, you know, legions of aircraft carriers and tanks versus superheroes and et cetera, et cetera. Then I would say, okay, that's that's a different type of game. And I don't think every superhero game needs that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Although but that, that sounds, sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds awesome now that I say it. Yeah. That's that's taken like the Black Adam route. Right. Right. You know, and I mean. <laughs> I kind of feel like, realistically speaking, a higher percentage of superheroes would be Doctor Doom than we are led to believe by Marvel Comics, but mm -hmm. it's neither here nor there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Dunder Moose, if Zod had won the game, exactly, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, so, you know, in terms of the high-level endgame, um, what I think is interesting is that most versions of D&D &D being played today don't have an endgame at all. Right. Um. And, you know, the term endgame actually became popular because of the massively multiplayer games, um, where which also coined the term, you know, the leveling treadmill. Because yeah. in a massively multiplayer game, um, massively multiplayer role-playing game, I should specify, you know, you go out, you kill monsters, you get gold, you level up, and then you're more powerful, and then you more powerfully go out and kill more powerful monsters who give you more XP, who level you up to kill more powerful monsters. And so um, you're never actually getting ahead in the game world in terms of your relative ability to kill the monsters that are at your challenge level. And in some, it's even worse, right? Like in Oblivion, they actually had it with such dynamic scaling that um, as you got more powerful, like the bears got more powerful. So by the time you're near the end, you know, the end of Oblivion, the bears are like these, you know, unstoppable behemoths of destruction. Um, and, you know, to solve that problem, MMORPGs came up with this concept of, um, you know, endgame. And the endgame is typically either PvP or raids. And, um, you know, and I, I think all of the MMOs are still struggling to work out the best endgames, but those two have been the most successful. You know, Lord of the Rings has a, has a PvP endgame. Mm -hmm. um, Elder Scrolls Online has a PvP endgame. And um, so 
in tabletop RPGs, though, it seems like people are um, very comfortable just advancing up the leveling treadmill and never really getting anywhere in the world. Like they do the exact same thing at max level that they did at first level, only now they have 20 spells instead of one spell. And I've always felt that um, the experience of playing the game should change qualitatively and not just quantitatively as you advance in power. So that um, you're not just doing the same things better, you're doing new things at a wider scale. Yeah. And that's that's what I've tried. And and I think it's that it's that more stuff at a wider scale is essentially what leads to domain play. Hmm. And there's this there's this fear that a lot of players have that once you reach a certain level, you're basically a civil servant now. Mm -hmm. And I think the the thing that those the, the people who make those arguments, the thing that they don't realize is even at that level, you can still have moments where you go out on adventures. Even, you know, Conan, when you mm -hmm. read uh the, the Scarlet Citadel, or when you read Hour the Dragon, Conan gets bored being a king and goes out and starts adventuring again and then gets himself into trouble. Uh, right. Th there's right. precedent for, uh, you know, leaving your throne in the hands of a regent and going out uh, on campaign or going out mm -hmm. uh, to, to look for, you know, this kind of lost treasure or something like that. You're not just a civil servant now. Right. And, you know, th there's a lot more expected of you. There's a lot more responsibility put on your uh, your shoulders as a ruler. But you also have the option to lead your troops into battle and mm -hmm. and do the the cool thing that Axe lets you do, where you cut down like swaths of people. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, you go into that super high level dungeon you've been hearing about the whole time, but. At the end of the day, you go back to a palace and now you are again responsible for your subjects. Right, right. Yeah, so if you remember the, um, I think it's the Scarlet Citadel, the opening of the Scarlet Citadel is that Conan's army has just been defeated by um, the depraved use of evil magic. Yeah. And so he's, and he's standing atop a pile of corpses that he's personally slaughtered and he's like the last man left in his army and they capture him. Right. And then they put him in the dungeon and he has to escape the dungeon and he fights the giant snake. And, you know, um, like Axe is one of the only games where you could do that. You could open that game like your 14th level character. Here's your battle. We're going to play this out using the Axe battle rules. Oh, you lost. OK, you've been captured and thrown into the wizard's dungeon. Now it's a dungeon crawl. Like we could we could do that in Axe tomorrow. Yeah. And um and those books, by the way, the, the Conan books, obviously were hugely inspirational on, on Axe. You see it everywhere and everything from the name to, um, you know, some of the uh, some of the spell mechanics and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. By this Axe, I rule. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Gotta throw that out there again. Texas Conan is back. Someone clipped that. And that was I hilarious. I know. I saw that. That was so funny. So funny. Um. Yeah, a couple of people have been doing some funny memes of me. I, I I have like this Twitter picture where I look really severe and contemptuous, and I've seen some pretty funny memes of that that have come out. So yeah. I should I should try and make severe contemptuous faces more often. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, there's. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. 
I'm smacking my lips. <laughs> Another, I, I just find it so, I find it so interesting how many people immediately write off the idea of domain play or commanding armies and, and they've never really given it an earnest attempt. Now, some people say they have, I would question how earnestly they tried or the methods that they used, mm-hmm. but there's definitely just this sense that people have already in their heads written off the concept of something beyond just going from dungeon to dungeon Mm-hmm. without actually sitting down and, and doing like the work to see how can we make this work or is this worth making it work? Because I, I think if they did, their minds would probably be changed. Right, right. Well, I think part of that reason is um, this principle uh, I spoke about on Arbiter of Worlds that players respond to incentives. And the vast majority of RPGs don't really offer incentives to make mass combat, uh, strongholds, domains, etc., cetera, uh, worthwhile. And so there are, you know, there might be like in-game or in-world reasons why you should, you know, want to have a kingdom and live in a palace and things like that. But the game doesn't, it, the, the game doesn't tie them into the intrinsic uh, reward system. So in Axe, the secret sauce of Axe is that I figured out how to tie downtime activities um, and domain activities and things like that uh, into the XP system in a way that makes the world coherent and encourages players to constantly wanting to do those things. And so typically the way an Axe campaign starts off, so let's say I've got six players, you know, and maybe one or two have played Axe before, the rest are new and they don't really get domains. They don't really understand mass combat. We start playing, and I, I don't push, you know, I don't push domains. I don't push mass combat on people. You know, then there'll be some adventure where, hey, you know, the reward is somebody gets to be the lord of this, you know, keep. And so I was like, oh, I'll do it, says Bob. Well, then Bob starts to get experience points from doing that. And the other players are like, wait a minute, Bob's getting experience points for being a lord? How do I become a lord? You know, <laughs> and then... Bob is like, oh, yeah, I, you know, let's do this major battle. I'll be the army commander because I'm the lord. And um, and then the army commander gets tons of XP and they get all this loot. And, the, and they're like, how do I become an army commander? And so then um, seeing the other players succeed and, and, and gain in power from it motivates them. And it becomes, you know, a thing. It becomes like a, a, a respected means of advancing your character's power and not like something you're doing for story or the GM made us get involved in politics or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you bring up kind of the different roles that naturally evolve out of different players noticing the incentives. Um, That's another objection that a lot of people throw out there is this idea that, well, we can't all be the King. And the, the response that I always have is, haven't you read Dune? Because when, when you look at the main cast of Dune, those are your high-level PCs. You have your spy master in Thufir Hawit. You have, uh, you know, Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck, who are military leaders. You've got Duke Leto, who is clearly a high-level fighter. And, you know, just on and on, you've got all these different roles that people can play where they're in charge of aspects of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of people just need to kind of open their minds to, yes, one player is going to end up being kind of the sovereign 
and the rest of you are going to be in support of you know the the sovereign's rule but you're all still working together because that's how a kingdom operates right well so you know in acts 2 i've taken a taken some great pains to um make possible a variety of group play styles so the first play style is you've got um you know the sovereign the lord and then he has vassals and so you can have one mm -hmm. player with other players as vassals you can also have um that the a lord can have magistrates like a chaplain and a captain of the guard and a quartermaster and the um the magistrates get experience points for doing magisterial duties on behalf of the lord so it could be i'm the lord you're the captain of the guard, you know, Bob is the chaplain, okay? And then the chaplain gets experience points and absorbs divine power from the worshipers that he can use for things. Um, and then I've also added, okay, you can also set up a Senate and you can make your Senate members be other player characters or henchmen of other player characters. And then the Senate gets uh, certain benefits and they have certain influence over the realm. And the, the, the ruler of the realm can only take certain actions without getting senatorial approval. So all of a sudden it's not like, oh, Bob gets to be the monarch and we just show up and do whatever Bob says. It's like, no, all of a sudden, you know, Bob is the king, but he's got all these powerful nobles that play kingmaker and he needs to listen to what they say. And then I've even created rules for straight up oligarchies where there's no clear domain ruler and it's all an oligarchy of scheming and whatnot. And we've, we've tested those rules. So I think, I think that objection, like it's probably true for some other games, but I think it's been solved for acts. Like you could, you could play this game however you'd like. You could do it as competitive PVP. You could do it all as members of one noble house. You could do it multiple noble houses on a Senate, whatever you want to do it, We can do it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now kind of switching gears here. Um, another topic that occurred to me very shortly before we came on the air uh, because I'm going to be doing an episode that's slightly covering this topic next week. You are someone who comes from the video game world. You also mm -hmm. have a strong background in wargaming and role-playing and writing. Yeah. There's this theory that was first posited to me by my friend Gelatinous Rube, and it's this idea that... Or James, he, James Streisand, he, he has a real name, but Gelatinous Rube is what he is on YouTube. Um, he kind of posited to me this theory that role-playing games as they are now have become kind of like the, the, the drainage pipe of creativity. And so there's a lot of failed writers, there's a lot of people who are approaching the game as if, you know, I couldn't make this work as a novel, so we're going to shove it into this uh, square hole. We're going to shove this round peg in the square hole of trying to make it work as a game, whereas we should be approaching this as game designers. We should be approaching it game first with the idea of, you know, kind of building in philosophies from video game design and wargaming design. What what's kind of your take on that? Do, do you think there's an overemphasis on the a fantasy novel that you play aspect of role playing games? Yeah, okay, so this is great. There's a lot to unpack here. Um so first off, I think he's right uh with regard to the the community of talent because 
unfortunately, tabletop role-playing games do not pay very well. Right. Um, and so, for instance, uh, in my, you know, in my writing career, I have written a screenplay for a TV show based on ancient, a teleplay for a TV show based on Aurelian Restitutor Orbis, uh, which is, you know, 50 pages for the pilot episode. And I've written 1500 pages of Acts 2 material. And it is a, a certainty that the, the wage I would get if I ever successfully sold that teleplay is vastly in excess of what I will ever get from Acts 2, right? Hmm. And so just, just because of the nature of the economics, you're going to attract um, the highest tier of talent into the competition of, um, you know, wherever the, the, the compensation is highest. And so to want to do tabletop role-playing games, you have to be, you know, I guess, kind of unconcerned about wealth and do it because you just really love the space. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, that's one issue that affects us. And so you do get a lot of frustrated novelists and frustrated video game designers that are working in tabletop games because the other options didn't pan out. Um, and the moment they get a chance, they leave the industry to go do other things. Yeah, it's a lot um, like comic books in that regard. Yes, 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 that's right. Um, now, on the flip side of that, I think we should also say that role-playing games, um, while they might be a drainage pipe on one level, they're also an incubator for really valuable intellectual property. And I'll give some examples. Um, Traveler was based, uh, sorry, uh, Firefly was based on a Traveler role-playing game campaign that Joss Whedon ran. And if you know Firefly and Serenity, you're like, oh, that makes total sense. It's literally, they have all got career paths before the adventure started and they're on a free trader. Okay. Um, or, you know, another example is, um, you know, the, uh, the aspect emperor and Prince of nothing series based on a, based on a role-playing game campaign he ran. Um, even the expanse is based on a role-playing game. Most people don't know that, but the expanse was a role-playing game before it was a, a, a book or a TV show. It was a campaign the guy ran. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you do have like this both like uh, uh, failed stuff comes down, but super successful stuff kind of goes up pipeline. Yep. And um, part of the reason I did my Ascendant Superhero game and I created a, a graphic novel was because I wanted to position myself um, to be able to tap into that success should it ever come um, and create some intellectual property because you know, as much as I love doing tabletop game design, it, it's also frustrating sometimes, you know, to, uh, to be worrying about money, um, because of doing so. So, um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, um, credit where credit's due here, uh, from Jeffro Johnson himself, apparently it was Mephrodis that coined the, uh, drain catch metaphor, yeah. uh, for the RPG hobby. It, it was, it was just, uh, James that communicated it to me. Also, Crafty Matt has said similar things in the past. Uh, so, Crafty, I've not forgotten that that you first kind of told me the joke about uh, failed writers. So, don't don't think I'm leaving you out there. Yeah, no. So, I think also um, the the other point you raised was, you know, does the sort of idea of you're in a story. Um, have too much power in our industry. And I, I, I mean, I've written about this extensively. I've done videos on it. I absolutely think it does. You know, we have this, um, this, uh, for 20 years, game design has been guided by an erroneous theory of, um, what makes great games and the cultures that have, um, sort of risen up around that 
I think are, are sort of headed in the wrong direction creatively. And so that's why I'm trying to kind of bring back the um, older approach, which I think was wrongly abandoned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this, this copy of a copy of a copy stage that we're at right now. And it, oh, yeah, there's definitely the sense that we need to go back to the original material, we need to remember where we came from. There, there's a inordinate amount of people that when you uh, drop the bomb on them that yes, you are playing a war game when you're playing an RPG, uh, don't seem to understand what you're saying. And I know some RPGs are definitely not war games, but you know, without them, you're yeah. not going to have an RPG. So th there is the sense that we need to go back and remember where we came from that, that we're right. getting to now. Cause we've, we, we've Xeroxed the paper too many times. Right. And so an effort I've been making on Axe 2 has been in the Monstrous Manual to go back to the original myths before they were Dungeons and Dragonified and find out what the ancient writers actually said about these myths, these mythical creatures, these cryptids, um, and then build the monsters based on that. Even if that means killing sacred cows of, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. Because um, mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've just moved past that. So like, for instance, the Gorgon um, that everyone knows from Dungeons and Dragons is this, you know, sort of metal scaled iron bull that, you know, breathes on you and petrifies you. And in Acts 2, Gorgons are not that at all. Gorgons are serpent headed, winged, tusked women who can turn you to stone. Um, you know, they're, they're the original Gorgons. And, and that's true as I went through a ton of different monsters. Um, which has been a lengthy and difficult exercise. But I think when people read the monsters manual, they're just going to be like, you know, a breath of fresh air on every page because the monsters, um, I think will feel more authentic and, and sort of um, living and not just tired photocopies of photocopies, as you say. Yep. Yeah. I think, I think there's not a small percentage of people out there who, when you said that will go, but that's a Medusa, not real, not realizing that Medusa was a Gorgon. <laughs> Well, correct, but also a D and D Medusa doesn't have wings and tusks, whereas right. the real Medusa, the real Medusa, the Gorgon did. So the way um, the way I handled it in game actually is um, I I set up Gorgon as one monster and Medusa is another, and the Gorgons are the winged, tusked, serpent-headed women whose head turns people to stone, and the Medusas are basically the offspring of Gorgons and humans, and so they have the serpent hair but not the rest of the traits. And yeah. so, you know, if you want this version of the myth, here's this. If you want this, likewise, like the basilisk, for instance, if you read the ancient sources, you see the, you know, some of them say that uh, the basilisk, you know, exudes venom and has a venomous bite um, and venomous air that it breathes. You know, others say that to see its eyes, you turn to stone. Like there's, you know, just kind of just two strands in the myth. And so I, I said, well, there's two basilisks then. There's the noxious basilisk and the petrifying basilisk. Yep. And, um, you know, that kind of stuff has been really fun. It's been fun to go back and read mythology I haven't read in years and fun to, you know, like Pliny's natural history and shit like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of cool stuff that's been lost to time just because certain things got popular. Other things were forgotten. And it, it's always cool to go back and remind people of, hey, there's this whole other uh, buried history that you, the, you just haven't been exposed to. So here it is. Absolutely. And it's getting easier and easier for history to vanish, um, which is surprising because more of it is available than ever. 
but there's just simply so much content being created. You know, a person, you know, um, who actually reads the original Greek myths anymore? Almost nobody, right? right? You know, hmm. uh, probably at this point alive today, I, I, I bet more people have read books inspired by King Arthur than have actually ever read like Lamorte d'Arthur, right? Like, mm. You know, just nobody reads it. And I, and I get it, but it, you know, at the same time, like if you don't go back to the, to the traditional roots um, and kind of replenish the reservoir, um, you end up just uh, sort of running on creative, um, thinner and thinner creative paper. Yeah. Yeah. And then R-Dub says his kids read the original, which is nice. Um, however, I do have a counterexample to you there, R-Dubs. I, I work with, uh, I, I work with teenagers right now. I, I'm involved in my church's youth group. And I asked them one day, I said, how many of you guys have read the Odyssey for school? And none of them. Right. Not even right. as like part of their literature curriculum. And and I remember reading it when I was in high school. So I'm not oh, yeah. sure what happened, but... Well, I mean, partly what happened there is that the concept of a Western canon came under assault. And so a lot of the books yeah. on the canon were removed um, as, uh, you know, no longer serving the purpose of education. So um, so that's a, that's definitely been a sea change, a generational change uh, in terms of what people read and what their baseline views are, expectations. And then Dundermoose here... Uh... Lamorte d'Arthur was the one with Clive Owens, yeah? I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> uh, no, it was a Monty Python show, yes. That's right. Now, getting into some of the, the details here of Acts 2, I know um, one of the big things that you were looking to do here is consolidate a lot of the material from uh you know the the other books that you put out in support of acts one um what is acts two even beyond just kind of a uh, a, a compilation of all the material for acts one what, what additions are people uh going to be able to expect from this oh that's a great question okay so um Edition number one is in the in the revised rulebook, which is you know the sort of the player facing rulebook. Um, we've added rules for uh, spelunking, so uh, things like you know rappelling down cliffs, sliding your way through very narrow crevices, things like that. Um, we've added rules for naval combat and sea time journeys. You know with um, you know uh, with a with a fair amount of detail, like you could you know you could you could play like trireme battles with it now very effectively. Um, and then we've added, uh, you know, we've, we, we've added everything that was an axiom. So that doesn't really count as new material in, um, in the core rules. Then in the judges journal, there's an enormous amount of new material because, um, I wrote a whole, about a third of the book is devoted to me explaining exactly how I built the RN empire campaign setting and how you can use the same methods to build, um, your own campaign setting for acts. And so I've got a whole section on this is how you build your setting. This is how you build your realms. This is how you build your cities. This is how you build your NPCs. It's uh, it's it's a huge amount of new material. 
And a lot of folks have, that have seen the preview of the Judges Journal have said it's the best thing they've ever read since the first edition DMG. And, you know, that that this by itself makes the whole game worthwhile. I mean, it's, it's been really, really raving feedback. Um, and then the last thing, of course, is the monsters. And, uh, you know, I went with the approach of every every monster that's in the book gets its own page. And so I was able to really drill into the detail of the monsters a lot more um, and do things that Axe players have been asking for for a long time that have been able to do like, oh, you know, well, I really want to understand, you know, if I if I captured a male and a female Pegasus, can I breed them? How long will that take? That kind of thing. So, yeah. like, you know, if you really wanted to, you could now be a Pegasus dealer in Axe, I guess. <laughs> nice pegasus breeder right yeah yeah so a ton so overall a ton of new materials um it is uh it is roughly um 66 percent consolidation 33 percent new material mm -hmm. uh rdubs to answer your question here uh skipping doubles your movement but you have to make a dignity save Oh, I thought he meant like a cutscene. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I think he does mean a cutscene. I'm just making a joke about skipping. I once got caught skipping as an adult. It was very embarrassing. I feel like <laughs> save. But I gotta say that for that brief period when I got to skip when no one was looking, it was really nice. Yeah. yeah. It's those it's those little things that bring you back to your childhood. That's right. Time. That's right. And then you're like, oh, shit, I can't do this anymore. I'm in my 40s. Also, my legs started to hurt. I was like, this is actually relatively robust physical activity. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then our good friend, the curator, Ryan Heffelfinger, has a question here. Uh, he says, Holyfield and I are debating switching to Axe 2 or AD&D. Why should we pick Axe 2 over AD&D? I mean, I can't answer that question without knowing um, what your campaign objectives are and what you're looking for in a game. Um, you know, characters in AD&D um, graduate to a level of power, uh, particularly magical power, which is very, very, very high. And so um, they can concern themselves much less with ruling realms and fielding armies because they don't need to field armies. They're one-man armies. Um, they're going to travel to the outer plains and fight gods. Um, characters in Acts 2 are much more circumscribed in the maximum power they need, and so they need realms, domains, and armies to uh, force multiply themselves. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's just like a different worldview of the sort of campaign world you want, and that's what I would make the choice on. I mean, obviously, AD&D is a, is a game designed by a design genius. It's proven, stood the test of time. Um, but, you know, it just won't give you the same play experience as Acts because it's designed differently. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Black Lodge Games has an interesting question here. Uh, how common are monsters in Axe? Uh, there's been a lot of talk about armies and, and stuff like that, but you know, how common are monsters in the general setting of the Arn Empire? Uh, that That's kind of the, the built-in setting for Axe. And then, yes, if Axe includes Draculas... Uh, I don't know if he means vampires or if this is some kind of inside joke that I don't know about. Um, <laughs> so in the Iron Empire campaign setting, monsters used to be rare. They're becoming more common because the borders of civilization are being overrun. Um, what we've done in Acts 2 is we've categorized the monsters into different rarity levels. Um, and we've adjusted the encounter charts so that uh, the monsters that get produced by the encounter charts 
depend on how close you are to civilization rather than on the terrain type. So in AD&D and BX, you know, it was very much like, oh, you're in forest, so you roll on the forest table. So now what we have is, okay, there's civilized borderlands, outlands, and unsettled territory. And then depending on that tells you, um, are you likely to have a civilized encounter, uh, common monster encounter, uncommon monster encounter, rare monster encounter, or very rare monster encounter. Um, and the further you get away from civilization, the further the odds, you know, sort of work against you. And then once you've figured out what sort of encounter you're having, then you go to the appropriate table. And so we've we've kind of got the Gygaxian naturalism, which actually keeps rare monsters rare um, within civilized realms. Like you're just not going to run into a 20 hit dice dragon um, in the middle of downtown Terenia. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you, you probably are likely to run into merchants. So, yeah. so it's it's uh it's really ba it's really rooted in um Gygaxian naturalism. The other thing I did um was I did this enormous amount of work uh, on something ca I call the ecology of Arapos. Arapos is the fantasy content, fantasy Europe. Um, and I worked out actually the caloric needs of all the herbivores and carnivores in the setting and how much food they needed, and then I was able to use those to make sure that none of the um none of the encounter tables ever resulted in monsters, more monsters than could actually survive in the area. So I thought hmm. that was pretty cool. Yeah. And that's, that's the attention, the detail that I think a lot of people are are looking for from this. I, I wrote an article recently about whether or not you should curate random encounter tables. And I ultimately said no, because whenever something anomalous pops up, you've created a mystery that, kind of draws players in but at the same time there are massive leaps in logic that can happen uh when you don't set up tables properly or when you don't use the appropriate table um and and so it, it it's good to have a little bit of a balance there yeah and you know so uh, the way i try and approach it is that um you want to have naturalistic outcomes that make sense in the world um, but you want to always have small probabilities of exceptionally unusual outcomes that make the world more fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the ways we do that in Acts 2 is that um, there are, in addition to monster encounters, there are terrain encounters. And some of those terrain encounters can in turn trigger um, other monster encounters. So, for instance, you could, through ill luck, come upon like a great sinkhole of evil which is occupied as a terrain encounter, which is occupied by a powerful monster. And then that monster kind of gets upgraded and hit dice because of being in the sinkhole of evil. And so um, you're like, oh, oh shit, you know, we, we crossed this, we crossed this mountain pass and we didn't realize there was going to be a sinkhole of evil here. And now we have to deal with this hellish beast. Um, you know, so, so the game actually absolutely affords things like that. So where you can get that emergent play. Mm -hmm. The example I used is uh, you're adventuring through a desert and you roll up a shambling mound on an encounter table. Right. And while a lot of DMs would be like, well, it doesn't make sense for this to be here. I wrote out a scenario in which the shambling mound looks like it hasn't eaten in a long time. It's faded. And then it immediately attacks the players because it's hungry. Right. right. They kill it and find a half digested wizard in his stomach that from the looks of like what's remaining of him summoned the shambling mound. And then later they find a group of soldiers who were looking for the wizard. He had escaped their custody because he turned their King into a ferret. And so you travel back with the soldiers to their home kingdom. 
your cleric uses greater restoration to uh, change the the prince regent back into a human from a ferret, and now suddenly you have the favor of a noble house because you ran into a shambling mound in the desert. Was it a swamp desert? It was not a swamp desert. Okay. And not a desert swamp either? No. Okay. Okay. Just checking, because I've heard that shambling mounds are frequently encountered in swamp deserts. Hmm. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I saw a shambling mound the other day. It was in Walmart. <laughs> that's that's where the shop. Yeah. There, there are uh, quite a few shambling mounds in, in the Research Triangle area. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. Yeah. So. Although I, I'm from Charlotte, so if we start getting on the, uh, the, the Charlotte Research Triangle uh, rivalry, that's, that's a whole nother episode. Is there a rivalry? You guys have like three times our population. It's, it's this sense of people in Charlotte feel that Raleigh will take care of itself before Charlotte because they resent the fact that Charlotte's bigger. And right, I, right. I don't know how much truth there is to it. Maybe a little bit just right. Cause that's how state governments operate. So it's but... the way New York, it's the way New Yorkers from Manhattan feel about Albany. Yeah, yeah. no, I, that makes sense. That makes mm. sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, in Texas, I wonder how they feel like in Dallas, do they sit around pissy at Austin? Is that the capital Austin? Yeah. 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 I don't know. Texas is weird. It's it, it's one of those places where every region of Texas almost feels like its own state, but it also feels united. It, it it's a real it's a very interesting anomaly of a place. Well, it's it's so big that every region could be its own state, right? Like you yeah. could fit four or five small European countries into Texas. Mm -hmm. So you know, Al, like Albania and shit could all fit in there. Yeah, absolutely. Although why you would want to invite Albania into Texas, I don't know. I I don't know. <laughs> That'd be a weird crossover. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, so what else can I tell you about Acts 2, man? I mean, it's it's a lot of material. I can go into if you want, I could talk about since we're supposed to be talking about endgame, I can talk a little bit about the end games other than domain play that the game offers. Um, I know some folks have have um, have been really into some of those aspects of the game. Um, mm. You know, you tell me. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's definitely something that I'd be interested in. If if that's something you want to talk about, let's uh, let's dig on that for a little bit. All right, cool. So, um, what I've done is I I set up essentially an end game path for each of the character classes, mm. um, and the end game path for each character class isn't enforced on you as a player. So, like for instance. If you're a thief, but you want to rule a stronghold and lead armies, you can do so. But rather, I used that endgame path to determine the average rate of leveling and the ages and wealth of the NPCs in the world who are assumed that they do tend to follow their path of their profession. So for fighters, it's obviously strongholds, domains, and mass combat. Um, then for divine spellcasters, we have um, rules for acquiring congregants uh, the, by proselytizing your god to uh, populations. And then those congregants can feed you divine power, which then you can use to do ritual magic miracles, create magic items, 
or simply um, return the divine power to your god for an XP bonus. And so, um, and also the uh, divine casters can become the chaplains of um, lords who are ruling realms, and then they get access to the divine power of the lords population, who basically says, "This is our chaplain," and you know, now we're here's the temple of Amonar, go worship there. So, um, so it's, they're complementary paths. Uh, then the path for um, wizards, they really, they have two paths. So one for wizards is um, magic research, uh, mm-hmm. which we have really, really robust mechanics for. The other is to be dungeon keepers. So there's mechanics for creating your own dungeon and then attracting monsters to come and live in it. And then um, if you assert dominance, you know, assert dominance. If you establish dominance over the monsters, you can then extract some of their spiritual energy to further your own purposes. So if you wanted to set yourself up as like an immortal lich with a dungeon, you know, you could do that as your end game. Yeah. Um, the thieves uh, become um, uh, controllers of thieves guild and criminal syndicates, spy networks, things like that. And so they have there's uh, tons of really fun mechanics for sending out your various members of your thieves guild to do arson, slander, smuggling, stealing assassinating and it can all integrate so like for instance let's say that you know you're in a senatorial realm that you're trying to take over but a couple senators are opposed to you but you've got this thieves guild so the thieves guild sends his assassins and they kill the um you know then they kill off the senators and then the chaplain convinces the ruler like hey appoint these guys like you can have tons of fun with it Mm -hmm. um and then we have the venturer class and then they have um a merchant guild house is their is their end game um, where they can have huge caravans um merchant fleets things like that all of which are covered by the rules as well as do passive investments so if you wanted to like become a money lender or run a business or you know fund an adventuring party we've got rules for how much profit you can make how much risk there is what happens if things go wrong etc um Mm. and then finally of course there's you know the mass combat itself which is its own its own beast there's three chapters of rules for mass combat for you know raising armies maneuvering armies and then you know doing the battles and sieges and um, you know, and that can occupy a ton of end, end time as well. So it's kind of like whatever place value you want, whatever you wanted to do, you can do it in Axe. It already, it, it's ready, it's ready to go. It does it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I do have a question about one of the specific paths here, but before we get into that, uh, Legion of Myth is here in chat. You're going to be on Legion of Myth in. Uh, is it a week from this Friday that you'll be on there with them? I believe so. I'd have to look at my calendar. I'm kind of. Uh, I'm kind of taking it day by day because I I went a little crazy with my promo tour. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, I'm on yeah the twentieth Friday the twentieth with Legion of Myth. Yes, gotcha. Will this be your first time on Legion of Myth? Yes, yes it will. All right. So uh, so something that you should know uh, when you go on Legion of Myth, uh, Max likes it when you compliment his ass if he stands up. Mm, okay. And uh, he also likes dwarf wizards a lot. Okay, that's good to know. So, good to know. does he? Does the dwarf wizard have to have a nice ass, or is that is it sort of I, an unrelated thing? I think he would prefer it because it reminds him of himself. But yes, you know that. So he himself is a dwarf wizard with a nice ass. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> Sounds good. Max, you know I love you. Hey man, no one's ever told me I have a nice ass, so I'm like much respect, bro. That's yeah, great. Yeah, I get like you have nice hands. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. That's great. Yeah. Now I uh, I ask this uh, purely for selfish reasons, but one thing you have talked a lot about and just mentioned there uh, before we got 
off talking about uh, Max Liao's ass. Uh, thieves, and, and specifically their kind of escalation into the end game. I'm working on something in that realm right now myself, and so I just have to ask, you are someone who does a lot of research. What kind of research, what kind of resources did you reference uh, to, to you know, build up that aspect of the end game? Oh, that's a great question. So there isn't a lot of information about it um, in the in in the time period which I'm researching, which is the ancient world primarily. Um, so most of the information I was able to glean actually came from uh, works on the police of uh, ancient Rome. So um, you know the the cohorts, Vigilies, the Praetorians, um, and it turns out it turns out that the Romans actually had a secret service that most people don't know about. Um, of secret agents that traveled around undercover and, and did secret missions, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so in terms of, uh, in terms of economics, I didn't find anybody that had done anything on like black market economies of Rome or anything like that. So I had to essentially just extrapolate from the other parts of the game to, to build that out in a realistic way. And, um, you know, uh, in terms of the, then there was like a legal system, um, I definitely was inspired by the actual Roman legal system for how um, punishment works mm -hmm. uh, and, and some of the different punishments that can get happen to you. Um, and, and, you know, they're pretty brutal and savage. So I would say overall that area was probably the hardest to research just because, you know, there, there's, you know, if you want to find out the logistics of Alexander the Great's army, there's like 30 books. If you want to find out about like police forces in Rome, there's like two. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I did a little bit of research on the history of policing when I was in college. And the one thing I found is pretty much all resources on policing start somewhere around the medieval period. Right. And because, right. you know, generally the first fact you learn is that sheriff is Shire Reeve, but you're like, okay, mm -hmm. what about all the time period before that? No one talks about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you know, like in Rome, one of the things I was surprised to discover is the police were slaves. They would wander around at night with torches and they were generally, they were slaves. Kind mm -hmm. of a, kind of a wild concept. So, yeah. yeah that would be interesting to, to play around with. There's, there's an element of that in the, the world that I've created, the world of Night Haven, uh, which is the project that I'm working on right now. Right. Uh, specifically, it's the sewer guard are basically prisoners. Mm -hmm. I call them the rat catchers. And the whole premise is these are the, these are the guards that were too rough for the city streets. So they've right. basically been sent down here to deal with all the monsters in the sewer. But at the same time, they're told whatever you see down there, if it doesn't belong down there, shoot it. Right. Including people. So if right. you go down there and run into those guys, you're probably going to have a bad time. Right. That's cool. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, I think if you imagine a fantasy world where you could have things like that, like monsters in the sewers, you know, I imagine they probably would have developed a police force a little earlier than they did in the real world. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's always just a tricky challenge in game design and world building is, you know, the right answer can depend so much on the um, assumptions that you make about how you how your world should be. Yeah. Yeah. And it's again, 
to to continue singing the praises of acts it's one of the things that you do so well in all of your books is you give thought to what kind of world is this what are the implications of these you know different things existing the, you know the the implications on the economy of there being an adventuring class or dragon hordes the uh you know the implications of military action based on all of these things it, it really is one of the most well thought out books that's ever been put out there. And I'm really excited about this second edition that you're working on here. Well, second edition is even more well thought out. You know, the first edition did have some flaws um, that were discovered. And, you know, I worked over time on Axioms magazine to, to fix them. Um, you know, and in another other places, it wasn't so much a flaw as I simply didn't, um, you know, I didn't yet have the design skills to make the complex simple, right? So like the original domain system had some recursive math that was uh, made sense, you know, and it was economically correct, but there was a better way to do it um, that didn't involve recursive math. And, you know, Axe 2 uses that, that better method. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I mean, I can definitely tell in working on the sequel that I'm a much better game designer than I was 12 years ago. Thank God for that. Like, I'd hate to be a worse game designer. Like, yeah. I know at a certain point, I, I I suspect, you know, people do age out of their peak productivity and that's got to be kind of rough, right? Like hmm. Stephen King is down to only one book every month or something, right? Like, <laughs> it's got to be rough on him. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I think right now I'm at like, quote, the peak of my powers. <laughs> this isn't even my final form. This isn't even my final form. That's right. My final form will probably be heavier, sadly, if any trends or indications. So uh, Dunder Moose here has been riffing on my concept of sewer police and come up with some uh, some decent names here. We have uh, Pooh Patrol, mm. uh, although my my favorite that he came up with is PP Popo. The PP Popo is, in fact, pretty good. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's we're going to set it in fantasy Baltimore. <laughs> it's going to be big. Oh, God. The first thing everyone does is leave. You with the popo? I'm with the pee-pee popo. <laughs> then uh, Gone Barleycorn has a, a question here. He'd like to know what uh, direction you're going in with the art. Um, just kind of based on the trajectory of your books uh, with, you know, Ascendant being, I think, oh, kind of the, the peak of your, your layout as far as, uh, you know, things have gone. Uh, what should people expect from Axe right. 2 in the layout department? Yeah, the so the, department. the um the book is going to look a lot like um, this book, which is my most recent book by this axe. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at the interior by this axe, it's, you know, it's full color, uh, two column um, with lots of big images, um, you know, examples are called out really clearly. So um, We've got the same artist we've been using for several years, which is Michael Siragos. Um, he did the cover page. He's going to do interior art for us. Um, the only difference between this and Acts 2 is that uh, with this one, we went with an art deco kind of vibe for the yep. interior because everybody knows dwarves are art deco. Um, whereas for Acts 2, we're going to go with more of a Roman uh, Hellenistic vibe in the fonts and like the paper textures and things like that so it'll 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 be kind of like more like papyrus instead of you know vellum and things like that but it's nice. going to be really similar it's going to be a lush full color book it's going to be beautiful mm -hmm. yeah and we're also doing we're also doing um pu leather covers for the for axe 2 as well so sweet i'm i'm looking forward to that 
That is yeah, me be, too. Me too. I actually um I uh I just got uh if you want to share it to your audience, I just got another um preview from my graphic designer about what how the books are starting to look. So I can uh I'm gonna drop this to you in um I'll drop this to you in Facebook. And then if you want to share it with your audience, you can. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe you can actually kind of drop it in here. No, it won't let me paste photos in StreamYard. So I'll drop it on Facebook here. There we go. And then, oh, here we go. All right. I'll go ahead and bring this up for everyone. There we go. Look at that. That's a thing of beauty. I love that. Yeah, so that's uh, that's a general vibe. We're still working on a few minor details, like how large the different texts should be, and you know things like that. But that's the that's the gist of it. Um, that's and so it's gonna be a three volume set. Um, still working out whether I can budget to do um, like a case for the three volume set for high end backers or not. But I'd like to. Um, hmm. Yeah, that I mean that looks great. That's that's gonna be great on a bookshelf, even. Even if there is no slipcase, I think that's going to be awesome. I hope so. I hope so. I, you know, I want it to be. Uh, I mean, I you know, it took it took twelve years to write, so I'm I'm not going to be creating another better fantasy game in the near future. So yeah. this is very much my fantasy magnum opus, and and I want the books to be something like I can put on my bookshelf and feel really proud and say the quality of this book, uh, production wise, was worth you know twelve years of labor. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Penny's Parlor here in chat has a um, a good question here, and you've addressed this already uh, on uh, Natural Ones, uh, but why go with Orc, uh, the Orc license over uh, Creative Commons or making your own third-party uh, license? So I might not go with Orc. Um, you know, Orc made some... Uh, I had been involved with it early on and then I got busy with X2 and I hadn't looked at how it had progressed. And when I went back and looked at sort of the final license, they made some decisions I wasn't legally thrilled about. Um, I'm currently thinking the elf license that Mythmere Games put together is um, probably the closest to what I think we should use. Um, I don't want to use the Creative Commons because the Creative Commons prevents me from um, calling out product identity or non-licensed content within the book. And, um, you know, so I'm happy to make uh, the mechanics of the game um, open source, but, you know, the R and Empire campaign setting is not, um, is not going to be open source. There'll be a separate uh, compatibility license for that. And so um, I can't really use Creative Commons unless I wanted to take all the effort to create a whole second set of the books, which strips out everything that's referenced by the R and Empire into a separate SRD, which is an enormous amount of work to little gain um so that's why but right now i i would say i've shifted away from orc and in favor of elf but i'm still evaluating it fair enough fair enough and and there's plenty of time to ultimately settle on which license you want to go with before publication yeah and i mean i might end up creating my own um or hiring someone to create one for me uh, I just haven't decided yet. I thought one of the virtues of going with Elf is that Swords of Wizardry will be on Elf. And so then for people that like to mash up the games, um, it'll be easy to mash up um, Axe and, 
and uh, Sword and Wizardry, which I thought was kind of like a network effect that might be valuable to tap into. Whereas I think many fewer people will mash up Pathfinder 2 and X. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I have one question here that I have to ask you. Uh, I've been I've been peer pressured into asking uh, this question by okay. some people. Um, uh -oh. And uh, you, you already mentioned that your uh, your lovely wife, the inspiration for the uh, the cover of Axe was a dancer in the past. And so I have to ask, what are your thoughts on the uh, possible correlations between swing dancing and role playing games? Hmm. Um, so when swing dancing caught on when I was a younger person, you know, like the swingers era that was in the, the movie, uh, when swing dan dancing caught on, the guys that used to game went off and went and did swing dancing and they didn't game as much because they were too busy. I don't know, hanging out with girls and stuff. <laughs> so, um, I would say an inverse correlation in my personal experience. Um, perhaps it's different now, but that was definitely, uh, definitely an inverse correlation back then. Yeah. Fair enough. There, there's a one individual who will uh, surely jump down your throat about that. Uh, but I don't know if Jeffro's still hanging out in here. And oh, there he is. There he is. So Jeffro has found that swing dancing is a good way to find gamers, or uh, Jeffro frequently brings up the connections between the community around swing dancing and the community that you build around uh, a healthy role playing environment. And he he has made a lot of good uh, points. Okay. Yeah about it and and there really is a lot there once you kind of dig in but uh i was also told uh under pain of hazing that i was to ask you about swing dancing right right so i do think he's right in the sense that um successful role-playing game campaigns are community building you know there's this great book called bowling alone um by uh this guy named i think his name is putnam is professor putnam of harvard and he just traced how social capital in the United States used to be maintained by things like bowling leagues. And after work, you know, every Tuesday, the guys would go bowling together and they saw their friends and they bonded over beers, um, you know, or church groups or the rotaries or whatever. And he documents in this book how it all totally has frayed and vanished. Yeah. And there's essentially an, an, uh, an epidemic now in the United States of... Um, men who are isolated and have very few venues within which they can make friends. And in general, men psychologically tend not to prioritize sort of friendship time, hanging out time, unless there's some other justification for it. And so I had this realization that all of my closest friends, it's all friends that the friendships have been maintained by gaming um, because yep. it forces us to get together on a regular basis and we talk before the game, we talk after the game about our lives and our wives and our jobs and things, you know, and um, and it's 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 uh, it's a very peculiar form of um, male psychology that requires that. But I really do think it's essential. So um, if that's what he's referencing, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. What's funny is when Jeffro was on here, we we were talking about bowling alone. So, oh, no shit. Well, there you yeah. go. There you go. OK. So I'm channeling Jeffro then. God help me. <laughs> <laughs> but the the interesting thing, and, and this is, I think, speaks to the general generational difference between yourself and me. You kind of had this expectation that gaming would be this uh, social experience 
Whereas I keep running into the issue where I want my D&D game to be like a poker night or be like a bowling league, you know, something where people keep coming back to, you know, mm-hmm. on a regular basis, you know, this is our night that we get together. And it's become so difficult to set stuff up like that because people my age, people in their mid to late 20s are so conditioned out of that mindset. They think of it more like uh, Xbox Live where uh, you on, you on, you on. All right, let's go. Rather than we're all going to be here at this time and we're all going to spend time together doing this activity. Right. And I, you know, I wonder if some of that is... um is due to the changes in the way TV programming worked. Because like when I was your age, you know, you would you would actually like plan to get together to watch like, hey man, we're all going to watch the next episode of such and such show. You know, let's all get together to watch it when it comes out. And, um, you know, and it was like an actual social occasion. And if you missed it, it was like, oh gosh, I missed episode seven. What happened? You know, there was no internet to go look and see. Uh, you know, you couldn't catch the recap on YouTube. And, um so I think people were a lot, people were almost programmed by their very experience of watching television that you set aside particular as time slots to do things with certain people. And that notion of setting aside time slots to do things with people has vanished, you know, and, and we have like this um, social discohesion where people think you can sort of, you know, stream in friendship on demand and it doesn't work that way. No, not at all. And it's it becomes really sad when we start to view our relationships that way, especially when you look at the, the people who get burned out on DMing in role-playing because they're treated like a service provider. Right. That doesn't happen when you approach the game from the right social mindset. Right. Yep. Yep. Absolutely the case. I talk about this a little bit in my book, Arbiter of Worlds. You know, the analogy I always used was it was an intramural sports team. Hmm. And you're committing to be on the team and we need you there because if you're not there for the team, we can't have the game. So, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't a a dinner party that you can drop in late and blow off if you want to. This is a a sports club and, um, and people get it, you know, and I honestly, some people are like, yeah, that's not for me then. You know, I don't, I don't ever, I don't ever like to commit to activities. And if it's like that in my generation, I imagine there's gotta be tenfold such people in yours. Yeah, Absolutely. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are running out of time. Uh, I always wish that that we could do two hours on Rolling Bones, uh, maybe someday. Uh, but this has been a, a great conversation. Once again, want to remind everyone: uh, Adventure Conquer King System Imperial Imprint, the Kickstarter starts up on October twenty fourth. And uh, if I remember correctly from uh, your Arbiter of Worlds videos. Uh, there is going to be a uh, a bonus for people who sign up on the first day. Absolutely. Yes, there will be. So you will don't want to miss day one. It's going to be big. I'm hoping to fund on day one, but it's a, it's a big project. So we'll see how it goes. Yep. And you are also currently on your Axe promotional tour. So for those of you who did not get enough Alex McCreese tonight, uh, you will have ample opportunities to do so moving forward let me go ahead and pull up the schedule here for the axe promotional tour let's see 
What's totally happening is that as I do the tour, each group is like taking notes of harder and harder questions to throw at me. Like I'm, <laughs> I, I'm just terrified by what what I'm going to be getting asked by like late October. There, you know, uh, it's going to be like esoteric references to you know platonic theurgy, and then I mean, I just, I, I'm it's going to be bad, but we'll mm -hmm. see. I'll do I'll do my best. Uh, apparently dunder moose was doing push-ups for every question i asked that he was going to ask you so how many push-ups was that i'd be on the lookout for uh for that one uh this friday the uh, 13th you'll be on with dunder moose yeah and that's then... not that's not that's not scary friday the 13th <laughs> live stream oh god and then on the 14th you will be on uh t-shirt historians uh this week in geek that's right uh, you will be on Legion of Myth on Friday, the 20th of October. Yep. And uh, like Max mentioned here, four hours of Legion of Myth. Uh, wow. <laughs> and then after that, you'll be on with uh, Mr. Max Boavian on Saturday, the 21st. Uh, you're going to be on with Mildred the Monk on Sunday, the 22nd. You'll be on with Double D, Diversity and Dragons, on Wednesday, the 25th. Mm -hmm. And uh, you will be on Unscripted and Unchained RPG Review with DM Bloodworth on the 27th. Right. And then you will be on Tankar's Tavern on November 1st. That's right. That's right. That's the promo tour. So, you know, there might be a few other additions to it, but uh, I can't imagine there's going to be too many because there's only so many OSR... Uh uh video streams yeah you know so every time i've ever done a kickstarter i always do the kickstarter it does pretty good and then afterwards like at least 50 percent of the people that i thought were going to back the kickstarter are like oh man did you do a kickstarter i totally missed it i'm so <laughs> sorry so i said i said to myself like i have worked too hard on acts two to hear that it will kill me if someone says that i will i will die of uh, a heart attack and so I was like, I am going to put myself out there so much. I'm going to be a shameless self-promoter so that I can at least look myself in the mirror and say, I did everything I could to market this game. You know, I, I, I put my all. So hmm. here I am. So Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you on those shows. Uh, thank you again for coming on. It's always a blast talking to you. And Thanks uh, for having me, man. We, we will do this again sometime. All right. Well, guys, that's going to be it for Rolling Bones this evening. Uh, next week, I will have on uh, James Streisand, a.k.a. Gelatinous Rube, and also uh, making his first appearance on Rolling Bones, Mr. Alchemical Raker. And we will be responding to Matt Colville's comments from a few weeks ago about how Baldur's Gate 3 delivers better on the promise of D&D &D than any mortal human dm ever could it'll be an interesting conversation for sure we all have lots of thoughts you'll get to hear my thoughts on Baldur's gate 3 which i didn't even think i'd be playing but i decided to play it so we'll be talking about it uh until then guys whether you rolled a one or a 20 i'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me ryan howard and i will see you guys next time